And you have your Bibles open there to James chapter 5, these last two verses. Well, everyone enjoys a good story, and most people enjoy a good rescue story, especially when the rescue turns out as you had hoped, as you had planned. And a few of you may be uh, old enough to remember a rescue of a guy named Scott O'Grady. He was a fighter pilot, and the movie Behind Enemy Lines with Gene Hackman was loosely based on his experience. In 1995, Scott O'Grady was flying an F-16 over Bosnia when he was enforcing a no-fly zone at that particular point in 1995, and he was hit by a Serbian surface-to-air missile that took out his wingman, destroyed his plane, and he ejected from the plane. And as he was parachuting down into hostile territory, he could see people looking at him and pointing. And so he knew he was going to have a trouble escaping. Fortunately, he landed in an isolated area. He got his little um, emergency equipment packed together and he ran into a wooded area and buried himself. And within four minutes, the Serbian army had swarmed the area looking for him. And for the next six days, Scott O'Grady, moving around very slowly, very carefully, spending most of his day with his face in dirt, avoided the Serbian army. And finally, he got to a place in a time where he could activate this transmitter, transmitter radio that had been in his little emergency pack, and he saw an American plane flying overhead, and he turned on his transistor radio, and he actually made contact with an American pilot. The Americans, for the six days, didn't know if Scott O'Grady was dead or alive. The problem with activating the transmitter radio and letting the Americans know where you were is what? You're also letting other people know where you are. And so the race for the rescue was on. Uh, The Serbian army, were they going to be able to find Scott O'Grady first or were the Americans going to be able to reply in enough time? And it was a long number of hours before Scott O'Grady finally heard these big sounding helicopters coming over the horizon early one morning. And two super stallion helicopters landed on the ground, unloaded their 20 Marines each, secured the area and began yelling for Scott O'Grady. And Scott O'Grady came out of the fog, waving his pistols, the only thing he had left in case somebody started shooting at him, and dove into the helicopters, and the helicopters took off and saved or rescued Scott O'Grady. Well, we all enjoy that sort of drama, especially when you know it's going to end well. And it's interesting to me that James here, the pastor of this church, he could end his letter anyway. And he ends it in a very unusual way. You remember, James is the pastor of the very first church of the New Testament. And his book is basically saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor of this new church. Everybody here is a new Christian. And the question is, how do you live your life as a Christian? That's the question the book of James is trying to answer. Here's how you live out on the streets as a Christian. And here he closes his book saying this. 
Some people, even though you've heard the gospel, even though you've heard me say five chapters of this information, James is looking at his congregation saying, I know some of you have responded to the gospel. I know you've heard my letter for five chapters, but I'm looking out and I'm saying to my congregation, some people are going to wander away. I want you, this is the last thing I want you to remember as a church. Some of you are going to wander away. And so it's going to be imperative for the church to understand that and to have people who are willing to come around and rescue other people. Robert Robertson, Come Thou Fount, the author of that great hymn, he understood that. The last verse, you remember it? Prone to... Prone to wonder. Lord, he feels it. No, no. No, I feel it. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gospel man. I, I'm, I've surrendered my life to Christ, and yet I can feel my own heart as I move away from the community of Christians that I'm prone to wonder, and I can feel it. I know God loves me, but I'm still prone to leave the God that I love. And so we want to take a look at just these last two verses today. And I want to spend most of my time thinking about this wandering. And then I want to close with thinking about the rescue. So wandering and rescue. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, anyone who gets off the path, anyone who goes astray, anyone who gets seduced, and I thought, well, what are some ways that people are prone to wonder? And one of them is here in verse 19. People notice people wander away from something. They're wandering away from the truth. And one of the primary ways people wander, both in the first century and in the 21st century is they wander away from believing that there is a truth. One of the primary reasons, one of the primary ways in which people wander is they wander away because they no longer believe there is actually a truth anymore. Paul says this in in Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. I like how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases it. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through empty traditions. See the see the empty tradition, the intellectual double talk of our day is the absolute certainty that there is no certainty. You hear that? This is taught all the time. Here's the one thing we can be absolutely certain of. There's no certainty. And they don't even hear the absurdity in that statement. Are you absolutely certain of that? Because you're contradicting your own statement. But yet we're we're taught and particularly at the university level. Hey, here's the one thing that we know. There is no real truth. Truth is not universal. Truth is not unchanging. Truth is actually not even knowable. And this kind of thinking usually gets labeled as postmodern or sometimes 
It's called relativism. What we previously thought of as truth is really just something that's socially constructed. It's some kind of standard that is relative to our particular time. Maybe it's relative to our particular culture. We're taught to never impose our socially constructed reality on another person. Certainly, we don't want to we don't want to project our socially constructed reality onto another generation. And that's what people would want us to believe. And since we're from some diverse backgrounds and diverse generations, we all are going to have to learn how to live at peace in some way. And in order to live at peace, something's got to be sacrificed. In order to live at peace, something has to be jettisoned. In order to live at peace, something has to be put away. And what the empty traditions would say, the philosophies of this world is, in order to live at peace, you have to put away the idea of truth. And so you, you know it. You see it. You, we live in a culture littered with bumper sticker theology that says coexist. We've seen the, the, pat, the people on a platform, the, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim and the Christian pastor all praying together, trying to create some sort of illusion that we're, we're all okay, we're all at peace. But what's happening with that is you're jettisoning at the fact that there is a truth. And we've just been swimming in that soup for so long that what James is understanding that's what's going to happen to people in his first century church. And he's saying, hey, I don't want you to wander from the truth. There is a truth. And one of the things you could do is just say, you know, I don't think there really is a truth anymore. And therefore, your wandering is just out there without any direction whatsoever. But we know we have historical evidence when there's no moral standard, when there's no truth, society, families, people begin to break down, begin to fracture. People like children cannot live without boundaries. It's just impossible. And we see the result of that. You look in Judges, the last line in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when you read through Judges, you realize they've just gotten to the worst kind of society when people have reached that stage. So... When you live in a culture that says there is no truth, nobody on the human in in humanity, nobody in history can stand up and say in the midst of a crowd who are all saying, I'd like to live just my own way. No one can stand on the stage and say, I am the truth. Nobody can say that. You can't have someone stand on the stage and say, no, I'm the truth. I'm cutting across all generations. I'm cutting across all cultures. I'm cutting across all societal standards. I am the truth. I am the very center of the universe. And everything does and must revolve around me. We just can't have somebody stand on the stage in our time and say that any longer. So you you could just read right by this and not pick it up. But James says something very important. That there is a truth. 
And we believe what the Bible says, that Jesus is that truth. Another way to wonder, 2 Timothy 4, 9 says something very briefly about really one of the most haunting people in the New Testament. It's a guy named Demas. And Paul, Demas was Paul, a part of Apostle, Apostle Paul's inner circle. And yet he, he wandered away because he had a love affair with the world. We don't really know much about Demas. He comes at the end of Paul's letters where Paul is just saying, oh, these people that are with me, they send you their greetings. And this is what he says uh, in Colossians, the very end. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Philemon, Paul writes this. My fellow workers, Mark, Luke, and Demas, they send their greeting. So I just want you to get a good picture of this circle. Paul, Mark, Luke. They pretty much account for all of the New Testament. I mean, if you want to get in a good Christian small group, it's a pretty good one to be in. Right? Well, let's see. Paul's there. Luke's there. And Mark's there. And me. Demas. He, he's in the tight circle. This is his small group. And yet, when we get to 2 Timothy, Paul writes back to Timothy, Do your best to come to me, Timothy, soon for Demas and love with this world has deserted me. I mean, you just wonder what was so attractive about the world. That here he was, he, he's in the tightest circle, and yet he, he wanders away. Something else is attractive. One, one, one pastor said, you know, not many of us are going to face martyrdom, but... We're all facing the threat of seduction. Just the the slow, soft punches that the world gives. It's the fear of every parent who sends their daughter off to the university. That just the slow, soft punches of relativism gets churned over four years. And then finally she pops out with a wonderful degree, but she doesn't believe there's truth. It's the seduction that's just a mouse click away. If I just click on this one website, man, wow, that seems life-giving. It's just a slow, soft punch before you completely wandered away. It's a seduction that happens every time you're in the grocery store line. Right? Right? I mean, it happens for men, but it mostly happens for women. You're in the grocery store line, and what is the grocery store lined with? A bunch of pictures that are telling you this is the way you should look. And you begin to believe, yeah, this, these are the beautiful people. And if you say, well, you know, I can't be one of those, then they've got a solution right underneath. Just eat some candy. That'll make you feel better right now. <laughs> right? I mean, I can't be that way, but that pit pack of giant M&Ms, they look sure good. But do you see what happens? It's just, li- it's just lining your lives. And you don't even see it. We don't, we don't even see it. But it's just this slow, soft punching. 
that suddenly just a year or two or five has come out that now you've just completely wandered away. You've fallen in love with the things of the world. You don't have to go other places in the Bible. James is really a book of the ways people wander. People wander into doubt in the midst of trials. People wander away from grace and into anger. They wander away from unconditional love into prejudice. They wander away by separating what they say from how they actually live their lives. They they wander away from total dependence on God to self-sovereignty and materialism. James understands that there are many different ways to wander from the truth. And I would ask you. Do you, you feel that prone to wonder? One, one reason why I think it's so easy to wander away, James says it's so, so easily seen here. What, what does he say? You're, 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 just, you're wandering away from the truth, but he also says you're wandering towards something. You're not just mindlessly wandering What does he say the people that are rescue that are the rescuers? What are they going to rescue you from? Not just wandering. Verse 20. You're going to be rescuing people from sin and death. You see, the stakes are high for James. You're not just sort of floating around there. Oh, I'm sure they'll come back. You're wandering from truth and you're wandering to something very particular in James's mind. You're wandering actually to death. And so James understands the importance of what's happening here. And of course, he's not saying anything new. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This day I call heaven and earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death. Now choose life. You've got a choice. And one of the choices isn't wandering. It's either you are moving in a direction towards life or you are moving in a direction towards death. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 7, 25. Such a great verse concerning adultery and a father trying to help his son My son, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway hell leading down to the chambers of death. You see, when you're moving in that sort of adulterous way, it feels life-giving. It feels energizing. And Solomon's saying, no, 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 it's the chamber of death that you're entering into. You don't really even see it. And, and we convince ourselves that the sin we're dealing with is something less than life and death. Uh, it's no big deal. I mean, no one's going to know. It's not hurting anyone. Well, yeah, it's bad, but this is the last time. I, I can handle it. I hear what you're saying, but I can handle it. These are the lies that you and I tell ourselves 
when we really want to continue to pursue sin and death. We, we give it a soft label. It's a problem. It's a struggle. It's an issue. It's a, it's a challenge. It's an area of concern. Well, yes, it is all those things. But it's life and death, too. I love this quote from Paul Tripp. The scariest thing to do is to look at death and call it life. The scariest thing you and I can do is look at death and say, it's life. And I wonder if there's an area in your, your living that you're looking at something or you're looking at someone or you're looking at some promise and you're saying, if I just had that, that would be life. And if you got it, it would be death. You feel like you can't live it without it, but it's killing you. A couple of things on just preventing wandering before I talk just briefly about the rescue and this, the, all these could be a whole sermon. So I just want to give you a couple of thoughts here. First, how, how would you prevent wandering? Lots of ways. Two ways, I'd say. One, you need to go to a church that teaches the Bible. I'm not trying to promote Christ Community Church if you're here for the first time. You just need to be in a church that tells you the truth. And the truth doesn't come from stories. It doesn't come from an Internet. It doesn't come from a video clip. This is where it comes from. If you're not walking away saying, I've engaged the truth, it's hurt me. I don't like it today. It helped me. It was uplifting. It's going to have all these effects. But you've got to find yourself in a place that's teaching the truth. Secondly, by staying in this church or in a church that does that, you begin to develop meaningful and accountable relationships. You're not dating the church anymore. You've gotten married to a church. You got married to a group of people and you have some accountability relationship. You're not in this these endlessly casual relationships where they never really break the surface. Oh, yeah, what's your name? Oh, what what do you do? What's your major? Where do you live? Oh, yeah, but you never get really known. Nobody gets past your surface. You don't get past anybody else's surface. You, you understand this because the, the dramatic moment rarely happens in the wandering. The wandering happens by just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just wander off. It's a series of small steps. It's not usually, I was just going this way and then wham, I'm way over here. It's usually just a, a series of small steps. And when you're taking those small steps, you have to have somebody in your life who can say, it looks like you're going the wrong way. I mean, I know it's only a small step, but if you don't get back on the path in a year or a month or you're going to be way off. And I wonder if you have somebody like that. I think about people who come to me. Usually when somebody says, hey, I need to meet with you, they've, they're a long way off, right? And I'm glad you call, are calling, but nobody's saying, I just think I've taken the first little tiny wandering step off the path. Can you help me? Nobody says that. They say, I've tried everything I can. Now you're the last hope. And I wonder if they had had people around them who could have invested in them at the moment that they started getting off the track. 
How many of those kinds of conversations could have been avoided? But but so many of us are afraid to share ourselves. So many of us are afraid to to be in those kinds of difficult relationships that we we just wander away until we find ourselves just in a ditch. I use that phrase purposefully because several years ago I met these parents who said, hey, we have a son at UNCW. Would you mind saying hello to him? Oh, no problem. So I called him. Hey, I'm so-and-so. Okay, great. I know your parents, which is a real downer, right? You know, I know your parents. Sorry, bad connection. You know, cell phone towers out. Um, So, hey, I'll buy your lunch. Let's just meet at PTs across the street from the university. Great. Okay. So nice conversation, lots of fun, lots of interaction. He, he really had a high regard for his parents. That was helpful. And I said, hey, I'm just really here for your parents, and you're really here for your parents. We don't know each other. But if you ever need encouragement, you need help, you know, here's my phone number. Be happy to be, be as helpful as I could be. And I could just tell he was nice, but he was looking at this square-shaped guy going, not going to, not physically, just, you know. And he was just saying, no, I could just say he didn't say no, but you knew he said no as nicely as he could say it. Like, I'm too cool. I pretty much got it. I can handle it. A year later, he calls me. Hey, could I meet with you today? Sure. So we met at McAllister's. We sat down and he said, last night I woke up in a ditch on Market Street. I was out at a party. I couldn't get home. I got a taxi. The taxi said, I'll take you as far as your money can take you, son. And that was about halfway up Market Street. He stumbled out of the car and landed in a ditch and woke up in the next morning. He just wandered away. And if I had been back with him before and said, hey, is this ever going to happen to you? No, it's never going to happen to me. You're never going to get that phone call from me. See, he didn't have any structure in his life. He didn't have any people surrounding him saying, I'm not going to let you go that far. I'm going to do everything I can because I care for you to to reel you back in. And, of course, we can't always help where the person goes. But it's are you in those kinds of relationships? Let's finish just briefly with the rescue. Notice right in the middle of this, these two verses, James has a warning call, but he also has a, a call to everyone in the room. If if anyone if anyone is wandering away, let him know that whoever brings him back. It's it's important to see this in light of the the few verses previously, because James has said, if anybody's sick, who should they call? Specifically, says call the elders. Have these people pray for you. But here, he seems to say, hey, you're going to have all kinds of different relationships. And if if anyone's wandering away, anyone can go out and rescue them. It's not just the elders of the rescue team. We don't have just a a 911 squad here at Christ Community Church. It's, It's look around. You guys are the rescuers of each other. Let 
Paul Tripp again says this, you're, you're part of a new paradigm by being a follower of Jesus. That is, I just don't live for my own spiritual well-being, but I accept the moral responsibility for the well-being of other people. I'm part of what God is doing on earth. I'm part of his system of rescue. And, and I just wondered if you come to church and you're a member here, and do you think of yourselves as that kind of person? Or do you think of Christ Community Church, and especially Sunday mornings, thinking it's kind of like a filling station? I mean, I get empty. I come. I get filled up and then I go out, burn up all my fuel, and then I come back and I get refilled. Well, in some ways, okay, we understand that. But you're also part of helping people who also run out of gas. And you need to understand that role as a member here. Finally, in my last point, if you want to be a good rescuer, if you want to be somebody who reaches out and gets into the ditch, and pulls people from sin and from death. You have to be have been pulled out yourself. If you want to be an effective rescuer, you have to understand that you got rescued. That someone out of nowhere out of love and compassion came down And rescued you from sin and death. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. Remember you. You were once dead. You used to live in your sins just like the rest of the world. You followed the ways of the world and of the devil. All of us lived that way at one time. We gratified the cravings of our sinful nature. We followed its desires and thought. And like everyone else. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. But. Because of Jesus' great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ when we were dead. It is only by grace you have been saved. If you don't understand what that's saying, you're not going to be a good rescuer. You're going to think more highly of yourself. Instead of just being an instrument in the Redeemer's hand, you're going to think, I'm the hand. Instead of pointing people to Jesus, you're going to give them a list of things they need to work on. Instead of having compassion, you're going to come with condemnation. So just two verses. First, are you wondering... Do you say, hey, it's just, it's no big, it's just one time. It's the last time, never going to. Is there somewhere that you've just been slowly seduced? You've been just hit over and over and now you're way off the track. Have you been rescued? Do you know the gospel? Are you willing to enter in on relationships and help the rescue of other people. Let's pray together.